welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Andy. And I'm John. We have assembled a list of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and we're assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And for this episode, The Luck of the Draw gave us Bernard Herrmann's score to the 1959 Hitchcock picture to end all Hitchcock pictures, North by Northwest. North by Northwest was written by Ernest Lehman and produced and directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Andy, give us a sense of North by Northwest. It's a chase, thriller, comedy, romance, suspense, action, mystery movie. It's basically all of Alfred Hitchcock's favorite stuff crammed into two hours. It stars Cary Grant as advertising man Roger Thornhill, who gets mistaken for a secret agent. Eva Marie Saint as a beautiful Hitchcockian blonde who may or may not also be some kind of a secret agent, and James Mason as a secret agent, but a bad one. And a special appearance by Alfred Hitchcock as man who just misses the bus at the beginning of the movie. So Cary Grant falls victim to an unlikely and unfortunate case of mistaken identity, and as he tries to extricate himself from that predicament, oh no, he only ends up in more and more unlikely and unfortunate predicaments. And it all ends up, as usual, with him dangling off the face of Mount Rushmore. Naturally. Naturally. And because he's Cary Grant, of course, he handles it all with wit and aplomb and a delightful time is had by all. Good enough? Yeah, good enough. <laughs> All right, let's start with where we ended last time. Oh, okay. Bernard Herman's name. Yes, fine. <laughs> Get this out of the way. If you've listened to prior episodes of this show, you have heard both of us, but especially me, saying something kind of like Herman or Herman sometimes and then Herman other times. I feel like I've said Hermann even. And the reason that we're doing this is because we're dumb. But the reason <laughs> that we're dumb is because his name is spelled H-E-R-R-M-A-N-N. That name, H-E-R-R-M-A-N-N, is actually my wife password but i would never dream of telling you you know what the wi-fi idea is so but now people are going to start driving by your house and guessing yeah. so at the time that i started becoming interested in film scores i was not in a community of people who uh, were interested in them i was just on my own reading credits off of cds and movies and you don't often hear people saying the names of film composers so i got it in my head because of my high school german that err is herr and m-a-n-n -N is mon and it looks like a german name but in fact, it's not. Bernard Herrmann's family was not German in any way. They were Russian Jews who came to America like a lot of Russian Jews, and the family name was Dardik. <laughs> and his father took the name Herman with one R and one N, just the first name Herman, because that seemed to him like an American assimilated name that would serve them well living in New York City. And then at some point, his father decided that it would look more distinguished. He realized that even in America, seeming a little European had a kind of clout to it. <laughs> so he thought it would look a little more distinguished if it had some more consonants in there. So he added an extra R and an extra N just to make the spelling really pop, you know? <laughs> so the name is just Herman, and I apologize. Yes. For not having really said it that way. I have known that since before we started this show, but while we're in the middle of a conversation, these deep errors rise to the surface again. Yeah, I'm guilty of a very similar set of uh, negligences. And I, in particular, feel like I should have known better this whole time because, as I think uh, we mentioned before, I was in David Raxton's class at USC and heard him talk about Benny Herman a whole lot. Uh, that's how he was known, Benny Herman. Yeah, that actually brings up the other point of pronunciation 
pronunciation question, how do you say Bernard? And the answer is who knows, because everyone who knew him called him Benny. In documentaries where people talk about him, you hear all three of Bernard, Bernard, Bernard. I think we'll just say Bernard because that's standard in America. Okay. Well, this has been scintillating, and I, <laughs> I think I don't want to talk about it anymore. Also, while we're on this subject... <laughs> oh, gosh. There's more? Yeah, just a regret that I want to spit out. Hey, remember when we talked about Franz Waxman and we spent a whole <laughs> section of the show talking about how do you pronounce his name because his original name in Germany was Voxman, and it seems like maybe when he got his Oscar, he was called Voxman when they called him up there? Remember that? Yeah, I bet longtime listeners are having war flashbacks to that moment listening to you go through this past little segment. Yeah, it's very similar to that. It was because we were trying to be conscientious then. We were trying so hard to get it right. I was anyway. You were just putting up with me. Which I did. You did. And I said, let's say Voxman because I think that's what they're saying back in 1950. A few days after that, we got an email from John Waxman, his son, who apparently someone had sent the episode to who sent a very friendly, kind, appreciative email we're very grateful for, flattered that he listened at all, and said, yeah, it was Waxman. It was just Waxman. Uh, he never heard his father say anything other than Waxman. He has no idea why in that clip we found Gene Kelly seems to have been saying Voxman maybe a little, maybe it was a joke, who knows. We have it on authority from the man's son, we should just say Waxman. So we apologize to anyone we uh, misinformed with that segment. In future Franz Waxman episodes, you can bet we'll say Franz Waxman. Here, here. Okay, got that off my chest. Okay, good. I'm sorry to hear it had been simmering there for so long. All right. All of that said. But yeah, all of that said. <coughs> uh, North by Northwest is great, right? Yeah. You love this movie? I love this movie. I love this movie. I love this movie. I've always loved this movie. It sets out to do nothing but to be a rollicking fun time. And it is a rollicking fun time. The highest craft of 1959 filmmaking applied to just spinning out stuff happening. That's fun. This has been one of my favorite movies since I was a kid. I mean, I've probably watched this movie as many times as anything. And one of my favorite scores since I first started caring about scores. Do you have that kind of history with it? I, yeah, this was definitely one of the early score soundtracks that I bought on CD and got myself really well acquainted with. You know, it seemed to me that it was part of the Mount Rushmore, if you will, of <laughs> Bernard Herrmann scores. You know, the Troika of North by Northwest and Psycho and Vertigo. And we've already discussed Psycho and Vertigo in episodes. Right, because they were on the AFI Top 25 list, and this one wasn't. And, you know, when I first saw that AFI list, it seemed natural to me that they would pick Vertigo and Psycho to represent Bernard Herrmann, and that North Bar Northwest, though beloved and iconic and important to me, yes. was not going to be on that tier. But actually, my experience watching it this time was, let's not be fooled by the relative frivolity of this movie. I think this is a <laughs> really profoundly good score, a really great accomplishment. Of course it is. I think that Bernard Herrmann strikes a tone with his music that makes this movie unique in its feeling, at least for me. This is the only movie that really has that North by Northwest feeling, and I think it comes out of this musical approach that he lays down immediately in this amazing main title. Yeah, right off the bat, there's something that really grabs you about the way this main title starts. Yeah, that's right, you hear those timpani, and it, even while the lion is still roaring, yeah. it feels like, uh-oh, here we go. Yeah, it's like he put the lion's roar into the music, and then the music is just like this extension of, okay, here comes the show roaring out of the lion's mouth. And then these lines come on the screen. It's another Saul Bass title sequence. Yeah, like we talked about for Psycho, here some lines come across the screen in this kind of jangly grid formation. Which turns out to be the side of a building. Yeah, that's right. This whole sequence is introducing the idea of a world that is both ordered and chaotic. That's right. It's like tilted at an angle, and the music matches with it in this 
fantastic way. Like, listen to this. It sounds diagonal. It sounds yeah. askew. <laughs> right. You know, we said about Psycho that the main title can't give anything away, but it also has to establish the tone and get you all hyped up for what's about to happen. Yeah, it convinces you that, whoa, there are some real stakes to this. It braces you for uh, an exciting ride to come. It tells you that what's about to happen, it's, it's going to be relentless. relentless. It's going to be topsy-turvy. There's going to mm. be triumphs. There's going to be catastrophes. I use the word jangly to describe the lines on the screen, but I think it really is a good word for the way there's so many different kooky elements in this music that feel haphazard. And yet, if you pay a little attention to them, they're actually very regimented. This overture makes such a strong effect. To me, it's one of the great launching a movie on a musical footing kind of openings. Yeah, there's a spirit of adventure in this music. And there's a spirit of musicality in the movie as a result of it opening with this. <laughs> there's a spirit of music in the adventure as well. That's right, yes. <laughs> hey, speaking of adventure, Andy, have you heard it mused that this movie from 1959 is, in a way, the first James Bond movie? Yeah, more or less. I've heard people say it was heavily influential on the formation of that genre, which I guess would be spy adventure. Yeah, you know, spy adventure, travelogue with a handsome guy and <laughs> beautiful women throw themselves at him. And he has to get himself out of a series of scrapes by skill and by luck. And people are chasing him without the movie even really caring whether you understand why. And the scrapes he gets into are free to be fantastically bizarre. Yeah. That's also something it has in common with James Bond. Yeah, it became a formula. It became a process to make movies like that. And if you follow that trend line of globetrotting action suspense fun time movies through to the present day, you know, you kind of know what those sound like. Those have a lot of expected sounds in them. You're going to hear a lot of dugga 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 dugga. <laughs> drums and repetitive orchestral playing. I feel like you've recently talked about that kind of thing being all too ubiquitous and just the expected way that you have to do things, but there is a sense in these movies that there's a formula to it and that there are demands on the score to just kind of keep that formula humming. I think in the North by Northwest score, in its own very idiosyncratic way, we're seeing a precursor to the idea of the music being this process this ride-along energy support system to keep the formula episodic action up in the air as it goes along. Yeah, I was thinking similar things about how this is kind of a model of energetic, balletic, rhythm machine action scoring mm -hmm. for this drunken drive sequence where Cary Grant after being kidnapped by the spies who foolishly think that he is another spy, I mean, they're idiots. There are many occasions in this movie to think that these goons in the employ of James Mason's character, they are uh, not very good goons. They somehow force feed him an entire bottle of bourbon. He is flopping around. He's so drunk he can't see straight. And they 
put him behind the wheel of a stolen car and they're trying to get it to look like he drove off a cliff. But then he somehow kicks the guy out. Not really a clear bit of action. And now he's... They're bad goons. They're bad goons. <laughs> and now he's drunkenly driving in this car and it's a real, you know, Mr. Toad's wild ride. Like, <laughs> stuff comes right at the camera. Oh, and it veers away. And... <laughs> yeah, it's exactly what it feels like. When, oh no, you're going to hit the stack of dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly what it is. I mean, the cue is called the wild ride. Yeah. And Mr. Toad's Wild Ride had already been built, right? Disneyland opened 55. 55, I think. Yeah. I'm going to guess that uh, Benny Herman did not ride it, though. In fact, that's what I'm going to say. The scoring style here does not play the standard comic House of Horrors effect of exaggerating each individual event. Like, oh no, here comes this thing. Oh no, here comes this thing. Right. No, it doesn't swoop around the curse with him. In fact, it's the exact same piece of music as the main titles, with just a few extra measures here and there. Yeah, it doesn't sync when you said that it establishes this energetic support system. That's really what he's doing there. You're right, it doesn't correspond to the swerves of the car. It's just a here we go on this wild ride. But I guess I wanted to point to what is he doing to get this, you know, formulaic action accompaniment system in place? We've already mentioned that we've talked about Bernard Herrmann on two previous episodes, and uh, I think that we have repeated some of the same things that we've said about Bernard Herrmann's writing style. Yeah, well, you can't help but repeat it because he really did have a style. Yeah, you can't help but repeat it because he really did have a style. (laughs) In fact, we have said a lot of the same things about Bernard Herrmann's writing style on previous episodes. Mm-hmm. You can't help but repeat it because he really did have a style. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we've said kind of the same thing on two previous episodes. I think we've said a lot of the same things on two previous episodes. Yeah, but you can't help but repeat it. You can't help but repeat it. Because that was his style. That was his style. You can't help but repeat it. Uh, yeah, as we've said on previous episodes. On previous episodes. You can't help but repeat it. And the thing about this little game is... Oh, what little game? It does function that way because it's not meaningless repetition. I like this as a metaphor for it because it is not the same as saying, 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 where it becomes, you know, in a lot of minimalism, you kind of leave the world of sensible sentences. Yeah, if you just repeat the same word over and over again, it doesn't sound like it means anything. But Herman isn't repeating words to the point where they lose their meaning. He's repeating phrases of sentences that still have meaning, and you get to hear new elements of meaning in them as they repeat. Because uh, the thing, <laughs> the thing is that Herman likes to write by repeating small cellular blocks of material. Yeah, as we've said on two previous episodes. You can't help but repeat it. This is a good metaphor for it because it changes its meaning slightly as the context changes in sync with the movie. As different events line up with it, the emphasis changes. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can't help but repeat it. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Good try. <laughs> the same bar can seem to be saying something different when it matches something else and as i was watching the movie this time and going through the score part of my mind analytically is saying well he just i've used the word wallpaper on previous episodes this is just really useful wallpaper but i couldn't actually hold to that it really seems to me like he has the new intention 
of meaning a new thing with the same little bit of material when he reuses it. It seems thought through. Yeah, it is thought through, and it's not just a repeat sign. He's not just repeating the same thing being played by the same instruments. The thing that he is doing obsessively throughout this score, I would even go so far as to say maniacally, is taking cells of musical material and having them get played in repetitive call and responses by different sections of the orchestra. I mean, we've been listening to this overture track. I can just spin it and stop it at any point, and you're going to hear some section of the orchestra going bum ba dum bum ba dum and then a different section of the orchestra going ba dee doo And then it's going to come around again, and now a different section of the orchestra is going to do the bump it a bump, bump it a bump, and then somebody else is going to play booty dee doo doo doo. It just goes around and around, and it's constantly permuting itself. You just get to hear the same ideas go all up and down the orchestral staff. Herman himself, in the liner note, called this piece kaleidoscopic, which is mm-hmm. really the effect. Because in a kaleidoscope, you're seeing a bunch of different fragments reflected through mirrors. So they're repeating against each other, but in different arrangements. That's a very apt metaphor. I mean, for how much energy is in this? It's a little surprising, especially in light of more modern practices, how little it depends upon percussion. The driving force of this is not a groove in the way that it would be now. The driving force of it, I think, is the energy in these jumps around the timbral map. It gives it this sense of this over here equals this over here. And in order for those to be equal, there's this distance that has to be crossed. There's a quantum tunneling between the notes being played over here. Oh, they just appeared over here. Therefore, all the space between them is alive with energy. It's somehow populating the sonic space with just motion and crackle without having a drum groove going along with it. Absolutely. It's like a burning fire. It's like something happening right in front of you. Yeah. It's constantly giving off heat. Yeah, and like a fire, it's sort of like it's consuming something or something is being spent and used up and spit out. He's come up with just a bare few figures. Like in this piece, there's the dum ba bum bum ba bum idea, and there's the do dee dee do dee dee idea. And then in uh, some parts, there are some wacky arpeggios, like in the brass, they go bum 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 That's about it. Well, there's also dun 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 Sure. The rhythm of the hemiola, they call that, right? Yeah, that's right. It's a hemiola rhythm because it's alternating these two bars between going one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two. Different ways of dividing up six. That rhythmic element is another one of the repeated musical ideas. So he's like posited, here are the things that I have, and now I will burn them in front of you, and they will just get spent out in every possible combination. About that rhythm and about this piece in general, this is 
also in Herman's own words, a form of a fandango, mm -hmm. which is a traditional Spanish dance rhythm. And he does go so far as to include castanets mm -hmm. to give it some of that fiery Spanish sound. And yet, that's it. There's no further meaning to the reference to Spain. There is no reference to Spain. He's using it purely for its energy and its drive. But anyway, all of this is just about this piece, which is an overture, so it basically just gets to follow its own internal musical logic. What's really impressive to me about this kaleidoscopic technique is that when he wants to match up exactly with the progress of a scene, when he wants to underscore step by step, he can stay very close to that same technique, but now be doing very fine sync work, and yet it manages to have the same effect that what's going on in the music is just a kind of rotating of a kaleidoscope. If you look at the cues leading up to that wild ride sequence, when Cary Grant is locked into the office where James Mason's gonna interview him, we get this little cue of the kind of calm before the storm. He's looking around, trying to figure out where he is and what's going on, a little mystery. And it's just made of these three-note rising yeah. figures. Da, da, da. It's the simplest thing you can think of, just three notes going up. Right, and we hear it a few times. Then James Mason comes in and the cue cuts off. Now they have their conversation. And at the end of the scene, James Mason says, pour him a drink, Leonard, and Martin Landau goes and gets the bourbon. And so now we hear those same three notes, the slow statement of them again. Cheers. Of course, here those three notes have become very ominous. That is on the shot of Cary Grant, his eyes going wide in horror as he realizes what they're about to do to him. And then there's a cut to later that night. Now they're on the cliffside where they're gonna send him to his doom. So same three notes, but now they're kind of shivering. We see the waves crashing at the bottom of the cliffs and it's nighttime and there's shadows. So we hear this dun 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 dun. And then as we see them dragging him to the stolen car, we hear again the ominous, oh no, here's what's about to happen. And then we cut to them putting him in the car and now it's Pizzicati. And also these little three note figures, some of them are major, some of them are minor, they're kind of queasily unsettled. All of this is on the one hand, very closely matched movie scoring. And on the other hand, is the same kind of stuff that we were just talking about as his compositional technique through, say, the overture. Yeah, it's the same kind of stuff because it is comprised of the same kind of stuff. It's like he's daring you to notice that he just wrote this one three-note figure, three notes going up. Ba, ba, bum. And he's like, yeah, that's all I need. You want more music for this scene? Yeah, here's those three notes faster. It has a very, like, you like donuts? Eat all of the donuts kind of feel. Like, just take it. Take more of it. This is all I'm going to give you. When they put him behind the wheel, you can kind of just barely hear him singing under his breath. I've grown accustomed to my bourbon to the tune of I've grown accustomed to her face from My Fair Lady. <laughs> 
I saw in the script that that is an Ernest Lehman original. It doesn't come from Carrie. <laughs> Ernest Lehman was sitting at his typewriter and thought, I'm going to have him sing, I've grown accustomed to my bourbon, <laughs> which is funny. Well, he's a theater goer. He protests to the guys holding him that he has theater tickets uh, at the Winter Garden Theater that night. If you'll look it up, the thing that was playing at the Winter Garden Theater in 1959 was West Side Story. So that was what he was going to see. <laughs> That's great that you looked that up. I had been wondering that. Anyway, as for why Herman is so restrictive about his materials, I don't think that it's just stinginess or a, I don't need to do more than that. It actually works well that he doesn't do more than that because you're not listening to movie music when you're watching a movie, most of the time. Usually just the back of your mind is sort of aware of it as this unexamined layer of activity. And for it to proceed by mostly just holding in place and repeating, almost not changing at all, but at the same time changing constantly in these little organic ways that do feel just like something turning in space or fuel just burning itself out, but they still manage to go where they need to go dramatically is just right and it gives such a sturdy feeling to these sequences. I certainly didn't mean to suggest that he's, you know, getting away with something or that he's only doing this. I just was, even after having done our previous two Bernard Herman episodes, I was still kind of taken aback by just how meticulously and concertedly he is setting out to spin things out in this score. It's phenomenal. It's eye-opening. Even to a Bernard Herrmann lover, coming to this score this time, I still felt like, my God, he is just doing this and doing this and doing this. What looks on the page like essentially repeat signs, the more you look at it and look at the sync points, you start to see, well, this didn't just happen because of a musical process. Like, here's the cue where this is toward the end of the movie, Cary Grant, he's sneaked up outside James Mason's house. Oh, I love this cue. And he is peering in, spying on them. He's there to save Eva Marie Saint because he correctly suspects that she's in more trouble than she thinks. It's a very minimal cell that makes up most of this cue. Just this da 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 but as each event and edit happens in the scene, Herman is there with it doing something subtle but appropriate. So here he is outside peering over the balcony eavesdropping. Then he kind of crawls up the wall into the room to send her a message. And as he starts to crawl up, listen, the harmonic range that has been established starts to expand. Now, his movement up the wall means we have these other chords because he's moving, there's some action on screen, and also implicit in the chord changes there. He's venturing something, he's taking a new kind of risk. Then we've got this little bit where now he's stepping over the railing into the room. That's a slightly new action, so it gets a slightly different little harmonic adventure. And now he's going over to the door, and as he opens the door, and now we've got the clarinets doing this sinking thing, that's him listening. Okay, now he's going to write a little message on the matchbook to get her attention. Now the rhythm starts back up, but it has a new meaning at this point. Now it is, it's his intention, he's got a plan in place. All of these moves are very basic, but that is why they read, because the, the musical context is so scrupulously limited that every tiny little choice manages to carry meaning and be intentional. 
Don't you think? Don't you think it always has a meaning? Or do you think that's something that the listener is inventing and Herman didn't plan it? The more I looked at it, I was like, oh, he knew absolutely each little shift of meaning. I mean, I think both. <laughs> yeah, sure it has that meaning. If you were listening to this without tracking each moment, you'd think he's just kind of spinning some stuff out. But none of what he spins out here is arbitrary. Hmm. The cue that you just highlighted is one in a long sequence of similar sound space. That cue is surrounded on either side with other cues where the repetitive kind of motor element is just a repeated single note. Like the next cue when he actually throws the message he's written on the matchbook down to Eve Marie Saint, that one is just these repeated timpanies and low strings on the single note. And that's got horns on top of it in these two-note gestures that go up, and they go up, and sometimes they go down. And those sets of horns just go back and forth, up and down, on top of the repeated note. And it's so effective, it just hangs all of this tension in the air. Same kind of business was happening in the preceding cue, where there's a repetitive figure. In fact, you might recognize the rhythm of this repetitive figure here. It's the same rhythm as the main title, the overture. Bum ba da bum ba ba da And there are some notes on top of that, and they're kind of wandering around. And the notes that they're wandering around, I mean, you can tear your hair out, like, drawing lines between the different motivic ideas in the score and, you know, connecting them with pins and string, like, on a police bulletin board. I don't know how much of it we need to do. Well, I want to do a little of it, if only to point out that it is part of the dramatic genius of Bernard Herrmann that the developmental connections between motives works in the back of your head mm -hmm. and helps you understand what the meaning of things is in a way that you don't need any string. Your subconscious does it for you. Yeah. I hear you that analyses where people say, hey, look, this motive is derived from notes 7 through 12 of this other motive, inverted, can often seem a little like, well, good for you. <laughs> but when that kind of analysis is actually a description of something you already felt, you knew they were connected, you felt some kind of connection, mm -hmm. then it can be enlightening. And I feel like that's one of the reasons this score grabbed me as a teenager. It's because it all felt necessary. It all felt like, yeah. of course, this is the, the next bit sounds like this and it's perfect. And that's especially an achievement in this movie because this movie is a cavalcade of random stuff. <laughs> exactly right. Having all of this repetitive stuff that is made out of pieces that you know, pieces that you're comfortable with and familiar with, and that you kind of credit with having meaning because you've heard them before. I mean, hearing myself describe that, what it suggests to me is the way that things fit together in a dream. You have experiences, and then you have a dream that's sort of based on them. They get reflected into different iterations, and they interact in ways that aren't really based on real things, but they're inspired by them. And in that dream, you have a perception that this all fits together, this all makes sense. And then if you ever remember such a dream and think back on it, you go, what? That didn't make any sense. Everything is a total non sequitur. I feel like that's what he's adding into 
this movie by deploying and deriving and repeating these things. The erroneous dream sense that, oh yeah, I'm putting stuff together and it makes sense. And it's such an important thing to be able to do for this movie, which in fact is made up of a mashup of just, like you said, random stuff that Hitchcock wanted to put in a movie together. Herman makes it make sense. Yeah, you're really talking my language now. I'm so glad you're the one who brought up Dream because I feel like there's been several episodes where I've said, well, this is kind of like a dream. Glad you got us there because this movie really works like a dream. Yeah. And I think it's perfectly fair to say all cinema is a dream. And, you know, (laughs) we're functioning in that level whenever we experience film. But I think in this movie, it's more pronounced and more intentional than usual. I agree with everything you said, except Uh you clearly feel like dreams don't make sense. And... (laughs) Dreams do make sense. They make dream sense, which is an emotional sense. It reflects something about the psychological character of the dreamer. Well, sure. But what I'm saying is that the illusion that you have while you're dreaming that things really make sense in a meaningful way, the illusion that is wiped away when you wake up, that illusion is what this music is doing to the movie. Yeah, I guess I don't differ with that. But the focus on that it's an illusion. You you think it's not an illusion? (laughs) I think it's not an illusion in the scheme of the artwork. I mean, this is what I wanted to say about the score as a whole. Let me step back and say it. I think that what Herman has made this movie into is a better, richer, more resonant thing than a James Bond movie or a, you know, an Indiana Jones movie or anything. And I love that genre. I mean, these are some of my favorite types of movies. We were talking about genre and I was like, I don't care about Westerns. This is what I care about. Yeah. Man is on the run. Crazy bad stuff is happening to him, but he gets out of it. This really speaks to me and it speaks to me on a dream level. And I think that Herman has profound psychological, I was going to say insight, but It doesn't even really matter if he had insight. He artistically feels it and knows what it needs to make it Mm -hmm. meaningful. Hitchcock and Ernest Lehman, you know, the way they wrote this movie, they basically just chatted out what would be some fun stuff to put in a movie. And then Lehman wrote it in order and did not know what was coming next the entire time. He just (laughs) knew that he needed to fit in each of the cool things that they had wanted, including running around on the face of Mount Rushmore. If you haven't seen the movie in a while, you might think, and why again do they run around on the face of Mount Rushmore? (laughs) Good challenge for aspiring writers out there. How would you get it done? Ernest Lehman gets it done by having a line where uh, Leo G. Carroll, the head of the secret agent society, (laughs) says... The professor. Yeah, the professor. He says, uh, James Mason, he's leaving the country and we know where his jumping off point is. It's uh, South Dakota. He's got a place right near Mount Rushmore. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) That's where he's leaving the country from. (laughs) From its exact middle. From the middle. I mean, maybe he's going to Manitoba, but I think he's going to Russia. It's kind of implied. Anyway, doesn't matter. The point is just the image, which they came up with basically in a plot vacuum. Yeah. Do you see where, you know, the famous central sequence where... Cary Grant is being chased by an airplane that's shooting at him in the middle of a cornfield. Right. Hitchcock's idea was just, wouldn't it be cool if the guy was in a field in the middle of nowhere and then all of a sudden a tornado came and menaced him and he had to run away from the tornado. And Lehman said, yeah, but uh, Hitch, how are, <laughs> how are the bad guys going to make a tornado happen to him? <laughs> And Hitchcock said, okay, good point. What if it's an airplane? Yeah, which is funny, but it also, I think, characterizes how this movie relates to Dream. In a dream, you might well think, well, the bad guys made a tornado come. And Lehman was just saying the kind of lip service that we need to give the audience that this is taking place in the real world. I don't think it can reach all the way to a tornado. 
And Hitchcock said, you're right, you're right. We have that double obligation. We have to put all the dream stuff in, but we also have to tie it together with, I'm making big air quotes here, sense. <laughs> I mean, don't think too hard about this plot device in the movie. It is a really far-fetched way <laughs> to have somebody killed is to, to tell him to go to a cornfield so he can be shot at by a crop-dusting airplane. Yeah, I think even I saw Lehman in an interview saying that he really wished that the airplane hadn't shot at him because they could have shot him anywhere. They could have shot him in Chicago. Right. At least what you want to think the scheme is, is that they wanted it to look like some kind of accident. A crop dusting accident. A crop dusting accident. <laughs> but boy, I mean, it is rightfully one of the most all-time iconic shots in all of moviedom is Cary Grant running away from that airplane. Yeah, it's a wonderful scene. It has no music, which is appropriate. There actually is a cue for the build-up to it that is unused. Hmm. That's interesting because that build-up is so tense and it seems like the emptiness of the space and the emptiness of the silence between Cary Grant and his other guy waiting for the bus in the middle of nowhere. The emptiness is the point. Yeah, well, Herman's pretty good, so <laughs> if you want to listen to what he did, here's his emptiness. It basically doesn't intrude on that effect. And what it would have contributed is that it relates musically to the steady beat that we heard in the previous scene when Martin Landau is surreptitiously calling Eve Marie Saint from the other side of the phone booth and giving her the instructions to send him here. So that kind of drumbeat of doom. Oh yeah. We would connect it, oh I see, this is the plan is playing out. But it also is probably appropriate that they took it out. It makes it even more pure. That shot of Cary Grant looking back over his shoulder and running from the airplane coming at the camera is so wonderful and iconic that, uh, Andy, did I ever show you pictures that I actually one year for Halloween went as that. With the plane, yeah, attached to you. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, I got a little plastic model airplane of that plane. It's, uh, well, it's actually two different. <laughs> I looked this up because I had to know what kind of plane it was. The plane that we see in the wreckage after it crashes into the tanker truck is uh, Stearman PT-17, which is different than the um, N3N3 Canary biplane that is flying in the air. But uh, I can only find a, I can only find a model of the Stearman anyway. You're going to cut all that out. Um, no, I think they I think that they should get a sense of you, John. <laughs> I think it's good for the listeners to understand a few things. Yeah, well, understand that I got the model of at least one of the airplanes that that plane represents, and I made a wire harness that I rigged up to have the little toy model airplane floating over my right shoulder, and then I wore a suit and I put a wire in my tie so that I could have my tie suspended out to the side as though it is blowing in the wind. And then I went around and posed like I was running and it was great. Yeah. I definitely won <laughs> Halloween that year. Yeah, that's like a sibling costume to the classic uh, Tippi Hedren with birds attached to her sure. costume. Which, uh... <laughs> Amazing that you mentioned that because that is what my wife Becky went as to the same party that we threw. Perfect. Of course. <laughs> yeah, she attached birds to herself as Tippi Hedren. Mm -hmm. It was a Hitchcock-themed party. I made a cutout of Janet Lee's silhouette and we put it behind the shower curtain in the bathroom. Yeah, that's like when I went in my costume, uh, I was in a wheelchair and then attached to a wire 200 feet away was a tiny little Raymond Burr. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great costume, Andy. 
<laughs> you had to be standing in just the right place to appreciate it, but it was pretty cool. Yeah. Speaking of my wife, Becky, she was on the show for our Psycho episode talking to us about some different uh, string techniques, different ways that you could play stringed instruments that Herman uses in the score to Psycho. And sure enough, he's up to his old tricks here again. He uses those same techniques. And going back and forth between these techniques is one of the ways that Herman has at his disposal to develop and derive the score out of itself. Here's a cue towards the end where uh, James Mason and Eve Marie Saint are walking towards the airplane that they're going to leave the country on. And we hear the strings going back and forth between playing sultasto, which means, as Becky explained back then, playing with the bow over the fingerboard of the violin, going back and forth between that and then natural in the middle where it usually should be, and then sul ponticello, which means over the bridge of the violin. And you get these slightly different characters, these different amounts of breathy, vibrating energy in the strings. the notes that they're playing are derived out of the arpeggios of you know uh, one of the main themes that we haven't even talked about yet but it's all derived and here's one of the ways he can do it yeah let's talk about that theme let's talk about where these arpeggios come from in addition to first of all just being related to the opening title which is mm-hmm. all in 3/8 all of this stuff is in 3/8 da 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 so da 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 we hear the connection. In fact, you pointed out that he puts it right in front of our ears during that sneaking around the house sequence. We hear dun da 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 dun da 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 da. And then that goes away, but we understand we're kind of still in that same grid. Mm-hmm. But there's this other theme, which is introduced... uh, It's introduced when the goons are first driving him kidnapped to the big estate where James Mason is pretending to be a UN delegate. Right. This is the first cue in the score after the overture. And it starts when these guys pull a gun and Terry Grant realizes, oh, this is a serious mistake. Something troubling is happening here. Da-da. Okay, here comes the music. And then as they drive, there's a crossfade, I think, and now we see them driving on Long Island to this mansion, and we hear this. Which is so cool, I love this theme. I love how windy and... uh, It's sort of two themes in one. How do you mean? Well, it starts off by winding these three note figures, winding themselves every which way, and you can hear them getting passed off between the strings and the clarinets, step on each other's toes and pick up the line as it wends its way around and about, and then it repeats. Now, for this repetition, it's got the horns and the bassoons accenting the first note of each three-note little group. So those notes now kind of stick out as a meta-theme, maybe, or a skeleton of the theme. And sure enough, the theme that you get when you connect those held notes...
winds up being another piece of material that can get moved all around through the rest of the score. I see, yeah. The skeleton theme and the specific theme are both yeah. get used. I was just going to say, I, I love how much of a maze this theme mm-hmm. is just in itself. How even the first just four notes, da-da-da-da, oh, you didn't expect that note. Da-da-da, and now it's already moved to somewhere else. So many twists and turns. And I think what the theme is supposed to signify is the nest of intrigues into which he is drawn. Sure. It's essentially the world of the bad guys and the world of spies and the world of entanglements, right? Yeah, I like that. Now, this theme is, I think we said on the Psycho episode that Herman, when it served his needs, liked to go to his earlier works and grab little bits of stuff because they got him to the place he wanted to be. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I didn't know that about this theme, though. Yeah. This theme, it's from a score to a 1951 movie on Dangerous Ground, which is a crime noir with Ida Lupino and Robert Ryan. (laughs) In that movie, he's like a cop with some problems. He's too violent, so they send him to go work on a case in the boondocks, and he's driving out into the countryside, and you hear this theme, I think just once in the whole movie, but it's also for a shot of a car kind of driving into new territory where who knows what it's going to encounter there. Herman must have wanted to start from that feeling, or maybe he just thought this was a neat little motive that he'd worked out that had more potential in it, which I think is right. Mm-hmm. Interesting that this one little thing is grabbed from the past, just a glimpse into his working methods there. But otherwise, it doesn't affect how you hear it in this movie, because, yeah, then he develops it through the movie. Because you certainly can't say about it in this score that you only hear it once. No, that's right, and that's what I was going to say. The stuff the da 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 the stuff we yeah. were just listening to her da 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 yep those figures are the continuing development of the intrigue theme the bad guys theme and that it develops is part of the understanding of the movie By this point, Cary Grant knows more about their world. He's more enmeshed in their world. It's not being laid out in front of him. It's become a whole theater of action for him. I mean, those kind of triplet arpeggios, you know, maybe they can be traced all the way back to the main title when the brass is going ba ba boo doo dee ba ba boo doo doo kind of crazily underneath the other instruments doing the rhythm. If you look at the bass notes that that plucks out. It's not exactly the same, but it's the same contour as the yep. as the secondary theme you're talking about, the four note da 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 da. The skeleton theme of this, you know, intrigue theme we're now talking about. Right. So let's play an example of where that gets its own highlight. Yep. And yes, this may sound like the pinboard and the string, but (laughs) I think that as you're watching this movie, you're experiencing the different psychological elements of this dream through their musical forms. And I think you are at some level aware of them because Herman is always dead on in understanding how they are glomming together and forming new holes dramatically, and that's what makes the movie go. 
the movie is not driven forward by story necessity or character necessity. It's driven forward by dream necessity, which I think is real. So let's just step back. What is this movie about? Why do people like this movie? Because it's not about spies, really. No. I saw that the contemporary review in The New Yorker somewhat snidely says Hitchcock has been inadvertently building up towards self-parody, and now he kind of embraces self-parody. I understand where they're coming from. The movie is sort of self-referential to the genre that Hitchcock was known for, and it does share some stuff with earlier movies, especially The 39 Steps and Saboteur that also ends with someone dangling off of a gigantic American monument. But I don't think the point of it is self-parody. I don't think that that's really fair. I think it comes from wherever these images come from, right? Like, why did he want to make a movie where people were running around on the face of Mount Rushmore? Because it's there. <laughs> All right, my read, my analysis after mulling this over for a while is I think that the movie is in a, whatever genre Alice in Wonderland is. It's like, it's an anxiety dream that you manage to triumph over. It's an anxiety dream that turns out to be okay. Hmm. You know, he gets into these Kafka-esque situations where all of society uh, is against him and doesn't understand who he really is. The whole first sequence of the movie is terrible things happen to him and then he goes back to the house and oh, none of his story makes sense. And the law is laughing at him and his mother is laughing at him. And the music's laughing at him. The music plays a little cutesy reprise of the Wild Ride music, but, you know, goofy style. Yeah. You mean you're not going to do any more about this? Roger, pay the $2. It's like mocking that uh, he's trying to convince people that this happened to him. Yeah, it's sort of lamely slower and dinkier and just and flutes. clunkier. Yeah. But it's Kafka with a happy ending. It's a nightmare and somehow, oh, it works out okay. And maybe it's also a heroic dream or a sex dream too. I mean, he meets a girl in the middle of all of this nightmare. <laughs> the appeal of the movie is that by just kind of being Cary Grant and uh, running when he has to run and doing what he has to do, nightmares work out <laughs> that scene in the auction house is such a classic social nightmare where everyone else in the room is doing something and everything you say is completely against the grain but here it's deliberate it's his brilliant scheme to get out of there and what's the music doing this is one of the more extreme examples of the same little bit of material getting repeated all around the orchestra now catalog number 109 the superb example of this early 17th century I feel master. like in this case it has the effect of, a, you know, a clamor around you. There's people speaking up over here, people speaking up over there. The ping-ponging back and forth manically, I keep saying, of this stuff. It's always evocative. Yeah, what would you say this theme is for? Because this comes back a bunch of times, too. Yeah, this is like, I don't know, a nervous theme? Then maybe also for motion. Like, this comes into play when Cary Grant finds the pad of paper and does a rubbing to figure out where Rory Saint went. And it's like, uh, okay, now the chase is on kind of a thing. You know, it was originally planned to be the very first cue in the movie after the overture, but they didn't use it. Yeah, the streets. Right. This would have been, I guess, when he's, you know, saying advertising stuff to his secretary and taking a cab. Yeah. If you accept the belief that the high trend X automatically means a rising sales curve, incidentally... Mr. Donahill? I mean, if you think that a rising trend X means, uh... No, I don't, I don't have it all committed to memory. I thought you were going to say, if you think that this auction cue is 
tossing material back and forth amongst the orchestra. Wait till you hear this streets music. It's crazy. It's like constantly interrupting itself, letting some other instrument finish the thought, and it's very marked in that effect. It's, it's probably too much, and that's probably why they took it out, don't you think? Maybe so. Each piece wrapped in gold paper. She'll like that. She'll think she's keeping money. Just say to her, darling, I can't the days, the hours, the minutes. You said that one last time. I did? Oh, well, put something for your sweet tooth, baby. Yeah, because that scene, part. you know, we're not actually in the energy of the movie yet. Yeah, but I think that it's supposed to be the hustle and bustle sure. of the city. And I think generally when it comes in, it's for moments when Thornhill is at his most comfortable with the society around him. Hmm. That's how I took it anyway. It happens at times when he's basically safe, but the world is still a little bit absurd. That's interesting because I wouldn't characterize the sound of this music as comfortable. Yeah, it's these chords kind of pulsing in and out of different degrees of dissonance. But yeah, I like that description of it that it's predictable. This is a very repetitive material. It goes and it's just going to keep doing that. And it does convey, yeah, that he knows what's going on. He knows where he is. You get a big punch of it at the end of the auction sequence when the cop says, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Then there's a big punchline slow version <laughs> you know of what it. I said? I want to be taken to police headquarters. I'm a dangerous assassin. I'm a mad killer on the loose. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> thing that makes this different from a James Bond movie to me is that it is not about a hero figure. It is not about him and his heroism and how charismatic he is, even though it is, and that's what makes the movie work because he's Cary Grant. In a James Bond movie, the music is there to get you to enjoy the fantasy of all the capacities of James Bond in every respect. You can do everything. You can manage every situation. Even if sometimes you get into a scrape, you'll get out of it spectacularly because you're awesome. <laughs> and certainly any more recent adventure movie, you know, an Indiana Jones score where he's globetrotting all around the world and screwing everything up. Nonetheless, the music is all about that he's a hero and he's riding on a horse and he's the best. And this movie's music is about this constant struggle between the bad dream and the good dream. At least that's how it sounds to me. That's what I hear in the main title. These two chords fighting it out. This A minor chord and B flat major chord. Mm -hmm. Back and forth and back and forth. And obviously the minor chord is threatening and the major chord is triumphant, but not in a way that's anything other than just their horns are locked forever. In fact, throughout the piece, there are a bunch of different pairs of opposing chords in tug of war like that. And it ends on a really strong opposition between an E and a B-flat, a tritone apart. And they fight and fight and fight, and then instead of either of them winning, it just ends on a chord that is both of them at once. Unresolvable. The tension continues. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we keep repeating about Herman's writing style is that he was really on Hitchcock's wavelength about the tension is the thing unto itself. The actual content of the plot is a MacGuffin, uh, just building something that gives you tension. He understands that that's the job. I'm saying that I think he could see even below that down to the subconscious of that goal. I think he got this movie. His liner notes say that the overture is a prelude to... His words, the crazy dance about to take place between Cary Grant and the world. I think there's a real insight to that that ends up creating the special tone of this movie. 
A dance between the protagonist and the world is its subject in a way that isn't the case in most adventure movies. They're not quite as attuned to the psychology of the dream. And I think that is the psychology of the dream. Like Mount Rushmore is society or it's some kind of massive, you know, faces looking at him that the United States of America has built, but he's just one man uh, having to fend for himself across their faces. It would be so easy to have missed the way to make that feel resonant by just playing any kind of action. I mean, I've thought of other kinds of action music that we've listened to that they want to make sure you know when someone is falling down or when someone is jumping up or when someone is hiding and they're about to jump out. And Herman wants you to know what kind of dream you're in and how it's making you feel. And he is unerring about that. He gets all the different gradations of anxiety and absurdity and sentimentality and romance, too. Like I said, it's a sex dream, too. <laughs> I mean... We all know what the final shot of the movie is. Yes. Did you read the story about that? I don't think I had read it before, that Hitchcock bought that final shot after the rest of the movie was done as retaliation for some changes the censors made him make. Right. He was annoyed that they had told him that they didn't want Carrie and Eva to be in the same bunk if they weren't married. So he had to dub in Cary Grant saying, Come along, Mrs. Thornhill. There you go, Mrs. Thornhill. Like, oh, they're married. It's okay. Hitchcock was so annoyed that they had asked him to do that that he said, well, I'll, I know what I'm going to show right after that. <laughs> but also, speaking of sex in this movie, the scene where they are in the room together earlier, I had this thought watching it this time. Oh, this is a sex scene that he just rotated vertically so that he could get away with it. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, definitely. They're standing up in a clinch next to the bunk beds in the sleeper car. They roll over each other in a very peculiar way. And then it kind of clicked to me. Oh, he wants us to imagine like turning your phone sideways and ha ha ha. <laughs> now it's the scene they won't let me make. Ah. You're very clever with words. You could probably make them do anything for you. Sell people things they don't need. Make women who don't know you fall in love with you. I'm beginning to think I'm underpaid. So here is the love thing. We first hear it when Cary Grant and Eva Marie Saint are having a very flirtatious lunch in the dining car of the train that they're on. Think how lucky I am to have been seated here. We actually hear there's source music playing in the train car. I tip the that just dollars. conveniently fades away. Do you know what that is? Probably. It's a piece from a movie from a couple years earlier from the score to Designing Woman by Andre Previn. Wow. Which is a Lauren Bacall and Gregory Peck movie. If you listen to it for a second, it does kind of bear a relationship to the love theme that's coming. Maybe someone had a, mm. a sense, because it has these clarinets on top. Okay, well, let's hear the similarity now, because it fades away, and then... We get these gently pulsing pads. Kind of a train rhythm, don't you think? Or a heartbeat. I always thought it was supposed to be like the under them, but uh, heartbeat's good too. And we have this uh, very poignant, lovely theme. Which is based around that descending two-note phrase. He likes it so much, he does it again. And this is a very pretty melody, and it stretches itself out, kind of unfurls in these lovely ways, and put me, obviously, I think, in mind of 
Madeline's theme from Vertigo. In fact, I think one of the phrases from it is very close to one of the phrases of Madeline's theme. Yeah, let's play it because I think he has seven notes straight that are exactly the same and exactly the same chords. All right, well then here's Madeline's theme from Vertigo. Here's the same notes going by here in North by Northwest. Vertigo was the year before, 1958. I don't think that's a reference. I think that's just because Bernard Herrmann was Bernard Herrmann every day. Yeah, exactly right. I think that's how he wanted to have notes go. But I think the more important similarity is that both melodies are built around these falling two-note gestures. But um, in both cases, he boils down the theme and reduces it and reduces it until he gets down to those two notes and gets to a place where just those two notes can kind of stand in for the whole idea of the theme at all. The music that plays under the uh, <laughs> the vertical lying in bed scene that you mentioned is just like a string of just some little sighs. Just the same little sigh going all around. Of all of the implausible things in the movie, I think the fact that this is love of some kind that (laughs) develops between these two people out of nothing for no reason is the most implausible. And it's striking how much feeling Herman puts into these chords. The second chord there, diminished chord, is really a pretty juicy chord. And also that it's these long wind solos playing these wistful, gentle, you know, the sound of an intimate voice speaking lovingly. It's not in the action and it's not in the characters, but it's necessary for the movie to balance out the way it's supposed to. So it's the right thing to do. And I think he's good at getting away with putting more emotion there than makes sense. He does it with a nice, soft touch so that you roll with it. So you said that what this score underlines in this movie is the tension between a nervous anxiety dream and a satisfying, you know, things work out and maybe I get to have some romance in there kind of a dream. Yeah. Well, I think that the tense anxiety material in this movie is, to a large extent, based around a minor second interval. The distance between A and B flat the notes that are turning back and forth in the overture, the first notes that you hear in the whole movie. That distance, the smallest distance between notes that you can have is called a minor second. But the two notes that are the heart of the love theme are a major second, the distance between B natural and A. So instead of bum, it's bum. That's what I was thinking of when you were saying the score has both a stress dream and a happier dream. I was thinking, yeah, well, there's the minor second material and there's the major second material. And he sets it up so that he can invoke the love theme and invoke the pleasant romantic dream just with those two notes. Yeah, so do you want to talk through just a little of the Stone Faces cue at the end where you hear all of the characters in the score brought together? Yeah, exactly. That's where we have to end because this is a tour de force. He's deconstructed everything that he's done in front of your eyes the whole time. He has shown you each and every component part and let you hear it in different contexts, different instruments, different rhythms. You know, this whole score is an exploded diagram of itself. Because he's done that, when he gets to the end, he's done this deconstruction Now, to hear him reconstruct it, to hear 
everything get put together into the thing that we heard at the beginning, it's so satisfying. It is. And to me, that's the rebuttal to this idea that the sense it makes is an illusion. If it's satisfying to you, it must be making some real sense. Oh, well, here, since we're talking about having this stuff get put back together and making sense, I'll share with you the kind of dream experience that I was absolutely put in mind of, if, if I may, if I can keep babbling about my own dreams. Oh, please. So... <laughs> I often have kind of involved dreams that feel like thriller, mind-bender movies to me, where everything is interconnected. Yeah. Sometimes I even think in the dream, wow, this would be an awesome movie where this thing that's happening has this incredible significant resonance with something else, and that really means this. And I then have the experience of remembering it and thinking... That doesn't make sense. That's not anything. But I had this feeling while I was dreaming it that it was satisfying. And that feeling is its own thing and doesn't actually depend on the content that it's being applied to. Hmm. So when I was paying attention to the music for this final sequence and hearing all of these disparate elements getting reconstituted bit by bit, every step of the way you hear something familiar and it feels like a puzzle being put together, I felt like the emotion that this music is giving me is that isolated dream feeling that this is a satisfying and resonant putting together of something that means something. Sort of in the same way that I said that the ecstasy of the gold in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is just the dream sense of finding something or questing for something without it mattering at all what it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. I feel like this is the dream sense of things make sense and they fit together. And it's satisfying because of that. That speaks to me about how this feels. The only reason I go, hmm, skeptically is because I don't think you give your dreams enough credit, John. <laughs> Why, you've seen them? They would be good movies after all? It's not that they would be good movies, but, you know, Dr. Andy thinks that you should uh, consider that maybe the feelings you have in your dream. <laughs> it comes from somewhere. It always comes from somewhere, including the sense of revelation or recognition. Yes, revelation. That was a word I could have thrown in there. It comes from somewhere and it speaks to something emotionally real for you. There is always a sense behind it. And I want to give Herman credit for having felt that sense. You know, you're not telling me the details of the dream because you feel like, well, they'd be stupid and they wouldn't mean anything to you. <laughs> and that's because you recognize that getting it to mean anything to other people is hard. It's artistically very hard. You have to have a really strong instinct for this stuff. It's very hard to pin down. And actually calling up Ecstasy of the Gold for comparison, which I think is a beautiful cue. And I said how much I liked lots of things in that score. Nonetheless, on that episode, I asked you what's it getting at because I was a little lost. Whereas this cue at the end of this movie feels like, oh, of course, absolutely. I don't need to ask John on the podcast, why are they on Mount Rushmore? <laughs> I get it. Yes, that's what I'm saying is that by letting you hear these musical ideas coalesce back together, you know, like the T-1000 glomps into <laughs> itself after it's been shot and becomes a person again. That's what's happening with this music and it's becoming the opening title music again. But new, but it's post-revelation. Yes. Here's the moment of revelation. These two chords. When they see the monument from the top, they see the bald domes of the heads from behind. We haven't heard those two chords before, have we? Right. No, that is new. And then that is revelatory, and now that becomes the skeleton for the reconfiguration of all our old friends. Yeah, but let's just back up a little bit from there to the beginning of this whole terrific end sequence. 
First thing Herman brings back is the rhythm from the overture. At the same time, we hear the four notes that were the skeleton of the intrigue theme. And you just hear them every which way. Those ideas again and again and recombined. Right. That's kind of a compressed version of the four-note theme because time is running out. The bad guys are catching up to them. top of the monument. Yeah, so now, here's the dance between Cary Grant and the world rhythm in the percussion in the orchestra. And then, this new transformed version of the bad guy's intrigue theme, but now conformed to the Mount Rushmore chords. That's the sound of the revelation having changed everything, but it just makes a strong intuitive sense. Here comes all those people, and now they're in this location which has this deep meaning. So now they're scrambling around on top of the monument, and now you can really feel Herman start to build the overture back up. We hear this kind of whirling figure that was in the overture. The clarinets first take it up again to lighter feeling. It's like it's just dipping its toe back into the water of that material. And then it goes back to the transformed intrigue Mount Rushmore version. Right. So then here we are a little further on into the sequence, and that da 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 becomes mm-hmm. its own kind of repeating figure. And then it settles, and now we hear the sighing figure that corresponds to the love as he proposes to her. Well, if we ever get out of this alive. Let's go back to New York on the train together. All right? Is that a proposition? It's a proposal, sweetie. Yeah, exactly right. Because, like I said, Herman has distilled the love theme down to just this two notes. Just by having those notes happen in the middle of all this other energy, we're reminded, yes, the love theme, yes. Right, and yeah, we don't hear the tune of the love theme here. We hear this no. reconfiguration, but it works. You get it in your head that everything connects. And then the next thing that happens after that is, oh, now here comes the minor interval again, the ba da 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 in the cellos and basses. And then it finally bursts out and he really is playing a full recapitulation of the Wild Ride Overture music, but it feels now like the conclusion of this process of construction. Yeah, there is this one moment where it feels like, okay, we're you know, opening the throttle and really letting it rip again. But then still from there, you know, it, we still hear different arrangements of things than we heard before, different instrumental groupings. hasn't quite gotten all the way back together yet, but it's getting there. It's a slow morph into getting back to where it was. I just am saying that there's a sense of the full circle having been thoroughly earned. Oh, absolutely. The place the movie ends is where it began, but now we live in it and we are rooting for it and it's not abstract anymore. It's this man. This woman, absolutely earned is a perfect word. He, He did the work and he showed his work. Yes. And one last time, I just want to point out how non-obvious a choice that is, even though it seems necessary and obvious in retrospect. 
think if we were given this movie without a score and you tried to think of how to score it, you would probably try and come up with a hero theme. Yeah. Or if not that, kind of a comedy approach, I think is pretty implicit in the movie. Hitchcock said that he saw the movie as one big joke. And it is certainly comedic how ridiculous everything is. Hitchcock was very enamored of this idea that he would hide from the bad guys inside Lincoln's nostril. Right. But then he wouldn't be able to suppress a sneeze. Get it? Uh, and then they'd find him. Wasn't a working title for the movie, The Man in Lincoln's Nose? Yes, that was one of the working titles. The movie is knowingly silly throughout. What's your favorite joke? What's your favorite joke in the movie? Um... Uh, it's not jumping to mind. What's your favorite joke in the movie? I think clearly the best joke in the movie is after he has been forcibly intoxicated and he's using his one phone call at the police station to call his mother. When he's talking to her and explaining what happened to him and he said, they made me drink a whole bottle of bourbon. And then he goes, no, they didn't give me a chaser. Yeah. I do really enjoy when at the end of the call he hangs up and turns to Emil Klinger and yes. says, that was mother. Okay, I'm sorry. It's a silly movie you were saying. It's a silly movie. And I read in an interview that when they were filming the crop duster scene, Ernest Lehman was on set and Cary Grant was grumbling because Cary Grant was not totally a fan of this screenplay or being in it. He did not really see how it was going to work. In fact, he did some interviews while they were filming. And he said, we filmed half the movie and I still don't understand what's going on. But then he said to Ernest Lehman while he was running back and forth with a plane after him, he said, you understand this is not a Cary Grant movie, right? This is a David Niven movie, which I think he was thinking of uh, Around the World in 80 Days, like okay. someone who's British and dignified, but less dignified. But I started thinking about how we were talking about the indignities done to David Niven in uh, The Pink Panther. Somehow it got in my head, that is what comedy scoring was in this era, and remember the cue at the end of that movie when they're in gorilla suits driving around in cars. Right, right. And Mancini chooses to do something that is the exact opposite of what I'm praising about Herman here. He just plays the sound of comedy. It's supposed to be silent movie pianos. It's all winking and saying, we've gotten to crazy land. Everything's silly here, just like in other movies. Herman was angry about all kinds of stuff, and I think what I was angry about with that bit of scoring in Pink Panther is exactly what he hated. He was constitutionally incapable of saying that something didn't have meaning, wasn't serious. He was always looking for the truth yeah. behind things. And so he sees running around on Mount Rushmore in all its craziness as serious business. There's no joke about this. Bernard Herrmann was one of a kind. There weren't other people in Hollywood who were so single-minded about being serious, no matter what they were given. And I thought, you know, if Herman had been given the Pink Panther, he would have scored, you know, why are we looking at gorillas driving little cars around? There's something about our sense of what it is to be a person. What is a gorilla to us? A gorilla driving a car. It's like civilization is an illusion. It could fall away. And then you think, okay, what does that sound like in music? There's all of this work that can be done to draw it out. If there were brutal Bernard Herman music during that sequence, I think it would mean something to me. Well, maybe we've gotten the chance to see what that would be like, because I remember you saying a very similar thrust in our psycho conversation. We were talking about how Hitchcock had wanted explicitly to make something schlocky and trashy. And Herman said, no, I see the anguish of true psychological deviancy here. And that's what I'm going to make this be about. Yeah, he had no stomach 
for things being meaningless. It just outraged him. And so back to, you know, we have motor rhythms and action music now that's repetitive, sort of pseudo-minimal. I think what's different in scores now that I don't love so much is that it doesn't come from this kind of inflexible psychological integrity that characterizes Mm. Herman. And I think that's why I love this movie. Like, it doesn't feel like a light movie. It feels like it's a real movie with real good stuff in it. And uh, it's a wholesome place to go. I never feel like I've wasted my time being diverted, even though clearly it's just a diversion. Everyone agrees that it's just a diversion, but it's a meaty one because Bernard Herman is there. Yeah. Do you have any other silly questions about the movie? Uh, I've got a question for you, John. All right. Is the MacGuffin in this movie the... Tarascan warrior from Mexico. (laughs) That has a belly full of microfiche. Is it a real artifact that they somehow like drilled a hole in and stuck the microfilm into it? Or is it a fake artifact that somehow faked its way into this auction? Because at the end when it breaks, it's like you had to break it to get the microfilm out. So I don't understand how, you know, why would they pick something expensive? I guess because no one would be inclined to break it. What do you think? Is it real? Not only do I not know, but I don't think that the concept of somebody knowing was even a glimmer in Ernest Lehman's eye. <laughs> I wanted to ask you when, uh, when Eva Marie Saint recommends that what Cary Grant order in the dining car of the train is the brook trout. Even though. Even though it's a little trouty. Mm-hmm. Is that something that... Uh, I wrote it down too. <laughs> I wrote it down as something to discuss. The brook trout is a little trouty. I don't eat a lot of brook trout. I'm not familiar with that as a liability for it. You know some of the stuff that they wanted to put in that they didn't find place for in the plot? Yeah, I know some of them. The reason that this movie is called North by Northwest, which is very fun to say, but no one knows what it means, doesn't mean anything. It's called that because when they made a list of the stuff they wanted to stick in the movie, they had uh, Killing at the United Nations, which was going to be a little different. It was going to be that there's a speech in the main assembly and the person making the speech says, I refuse to go on until the delegate from Brazil wakes up and then someone goes and nudges the delegate who seems to be asleep and they fall over they are dead and the only clue is that they drew on a piece of paper some moose antlers this was an idea they had (laughs) they didn't know why moose antlers they just thought that would be a good image so the moose antlers and Mount Rushmore and they also had a thing that they didn't use of uh, that someone was going to be ice fishing and then uh, the arm of a corpse was going to come up through the hole which is a good idea so Ernest Lehman thought okay we've got something at the United Nations but then we've got Mount Mount Rushmore and ice fishing and moose antlers. So it seems like we're kind of moving in a northwesterly direction, that it was going to maybe end in Alaska or something. So then his working title was in a northwesterly direction because that was the direction he had to somehow contrive to make the script go. And then someone at the studio said, you know, what's a better title than that would be North by Northwest, because that sounded to them like a fancy compass direction. But it is not an actual compass direction. North Northwest is. North Northwest is a compass direction. So that's if you divide it into 16. And then if you divide it into 32, the one between North Northwest and North would be called North by West, which means you go to the North Point and then you just go 132nd towards West. But after the by, you always put one of the cardinal directions. That's the rule. So there's no by Northwest. But they didn't know that. They just made it up. Yeah, I I knew something of that provenance. But also, isn't there a spot when they fly on an airplane from, what is it, Chicago to Rapid City, they're flying on a Northwest airplane, right? But they're not going north at that point. They're going from Chicago to South Dakota. Which is west. Yeah. Honestly, they don't go very north at all in this movie. No. (laughs) 
<laughs> nope. They got Herman escort instead of Norris. Uh, that's true. All right, Andy. I, do we really need closing statements for this one? I think we've really uh, kind of repeated a lot of the same stuff that we had to say all throughout the show. Yeah, but you can't help but repeat it. You have to repeat well, it. Well, you have to repeat it. You can't help but do yeah, that. As we've said on previous episodes. We've said a lot of the same stuff on previous episodes. I want a closing statement that this wasn't on the AFI list. Vertigo and Psycho were. As we've mentioned, Bernard Herman wrote for many other movies than Hitchcock movies, and the next time we mention him will be for a non-Hitchcock movie. But these three definitely are up there, and I want to, on behalf of this movie, say, let's not discount escapist movies or fun movies as requiring less art or craft or depth in the sense that depth applies. I feel like in its way, this is just a model score with profound insight into genre and and cinema. You know, this movie in some ways is one of those icons of what cinema can be, as we've talked about before. Yeah. That airplane bearing down on Cary Grant or the faces of Mount Rushmore or almost any scene in this movie feels like, yeah, that's what you go to the movies for. For someone to really understand what makes that tick deep down and, and capture it in music is a big deal. And to me, this is a big deal score, not just a fun score. Yeah, here, here to that, you know, what do they say? Dying is easy, comedy is hard. And we haven't really talked about a lot of comedy on this show. But speaking of what we talk about on this show, it is now time to pull out the bucket and assign ourselves another score. Comedy would be great. Also, any other movie would be great. Not any other movie. Any other movie on this list? Pretty much. Pretty much. All right. Any other movie in the bucket? Let me get the bucket. I think it's my turn. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's the ball noise. And here is some suspenseful music going around in a circle while it waits for us to pull out the ball. This was not hard to find. (laughs) All right. There they go. Around and around. Developing and deriving. Yes, yes. (laughs) Thank you. And I reach in. And I have taken a hold of the ball that says on it. Oh, wow. Okay, Andy. Hmm? Are you ready for the 1985 score to... 85. Or is it 85? I don't know. Back to the Future by Alan Silvestri. (laughs) I'm ready. I'm ready for that. Is it 85? It is. It's definitely 85. It's all about being 85. It's as 85 as it gets. Yeah, I'm ready for that. We haven't talked about Alan Silvestri even once, and this is obviously a place to start. Yeah, this is his calling card. And you said you wanted a comedy. Yeah, it's exactly. It's not exactly what you were thinking of, but it is a comedy. Yeah, this is right down the middle. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I mean, of course. Right up there with North by Northwest as a movie that I watched over and over as a kid, and the music sank in there deep, and sure, I got stuff to say about this. All right, well, let's dig it out. Yeah. I don't have time travel car jokes to make about it right now, but I will prepare some for next time. (laughs) Well, you're not thinking four-dimensionally, Andy. Maybe you already have. Mm -hmm. Oh, here I come running in right now telling me not to say that because it sounds bad on the podcast. Sorry. (laughs) Too late. (laughs) John, does that mean we're doing Back to the Future 2 and 3 also? It's a lot of movie to watch. I mean, uh, you got a lot else going on these days. Uh, What could be worse than watching those three movies? All right. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how much 2 and 3 there is, but definitely a whole lot of 1. Cool. All right. Time to stop for crying out loud. Let's go through this quick. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Subscribe. Tell your friends. Thank you for uh, listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you for writing reviews to those who have written reviews. It means a lot to us. We've also been getting some very nice correspondence from listeners recently, and uh, we want to encourage that to keep happening. A great place to do that is to find us on Twitter, at Scoresettlers. Yeah. All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening, everybody. (laughs) 